All right, we are recording. And what I just said to everybody here is uh, this morning I had root canal done and they ripped up my tongue a bit. So I'm going to talk a little funny. Um, bear with me. And if you can't tell, then forget I said that. One of the first things you, t you learn in speech is don't apologize in advance because they may not notice. And I just blew that one, didn't I? Well, the raspy is, you know, a combination of the damage to my cords uh, years ago and the uh, drainage. But I'm still working on it. I'm in speech therapy trying to relearn some things that are supposed to change me. So tonight, we have now been through the Gospels. We did the synoptics, which means what? Well, that's who they are. What? Okay, to look together or to see together. And then the Gospel of John. What is the primary distinction or the main difference between the synoptics and the Gospel of John? The language is like for common people compared to... Okay, the, the well, yeah, Matthew would be relatively there, but yes, John is much, much more basic Greek. Okay, the synoptics were written in the early 60s, John written 30 some years later, and that means that John had the synoptics. He knew what they had said already, that had been in circulation for several decades, and uh, he knew that those authors were no longer with him. They were dead. He knew he was the last apostle. So when he writes his, he's writing from the perspective of what do people need to hear? What does the church need that they don't already have in the synoptics? Okay. Or for that matter, in the book of Acts or the others, because um, the Gospel of John was one of the last written. We don't really know uh, the chronology between the Gospel and the three letters, and uh, it is believed the Revelation is actually the last one, but it's all within a few years. So he knows, and the Holy Spirit, of course, knows that the church is going to get another installment. And uh, so what we see in John differs, not, not in terms of contradiction, but differs in the sense that uh, he focuses a little bit different and he covers a lot of things that are not covered in the synoptics. And he leaves a lot of things that are covered in the synoptics. For the simple reason, they're already covered. Make sense? So now we move on to uh, the section that is usually referred to as church history. And uh, a little bit funny because it's actually only one book, but one book can mean a section, and that is the book of Acts. Um, I do have, by the way, the uh, sign-in sheet. Everybody here, I believe, is already on the email list, but it would still be useful to me if you would just sign in. So uh, I'm going to hold it for a few more minutes for some late people, and then I'll pass that around. Okay, now before we dive in, um, I want to go over here to the board again and ask you two questions, basically. One is, 
do you have any questions about anything we've covered already? That's always fair game. You start thinking about it, or uh, maybe you missed one, you listened to the, to the uh, recording, and it didn't scratch where it itches. Um, so anything of that nature, I'd be happy to try to address. But also, the book of Acts. Do you have any questions already in your mind that you want to make sure that we touch on regarding the book of Acts? Um, when you say are they attached are they attached in terms of the text no so the text does not tell us it doesn't say um, chapter 3 date whatever and remember by the way you all know right the chapters were 16th centuries later and the verses another century century and a half later than that so those are artificial, those are things we've added. Um, oddly enough, many documents had those things. Today, we still do it only in one particular context. Does anybody know what that is? Have you encountered it? What is the law? Legal contracts. They still do exactly the same thing so that they can refer to section whatever, page whatever, line whatever, and then you don't have to be looking for it. That's why the chapter and, and uh, verse breaks were put in. Uh, remember, uncial Greek, which is uh, the form that Greek was uh, written in in Kine Greek in the first century, had no smaller case, had no punctuation whatsoever, had no spaces, and no paragraph breaks. So, I mean, it would drive us crazy. It was just letters, and if you ran out of room, you did not, you know, stop at a uh, at a syllable break or at a word break. You stopped where you ran out of room, and then you picked up over here and kept going. And um, I mean, that's how they wrote. So to them, it was no big deal. To us, we stare at it, and it's 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 very hard for us to read that. When you get used to it, it's still hard, but you can do it. But what that means is chapter breaks, uh, verse breaks, sentence breaks, paragraph breaks, um, all punctuation, capitalization even. If you see capital S, spirit, small s, spirit, capital A, apostle, small a, apostle, 100% of that is translators. Or in the case of the chapter and verses, uh, one particular person in each one did those and it just became popular and spread all over the world. So don't place too much on those. There's times when sentences are literally broken up in the, uh, there's chapters breaking up sentences or verses breaking up sentences and we end up never hearing the full thing. How many of you have heard 2 Timothy 3.16? Say so you have, you just don't. And by the way, I'm not against that. It's okay to use it for reference, but let's not get tied to that because then we tend to go to that sentence instead of reading the context and understanding the whole thing. 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness. 
You guys hear anything like that before? Okay. And that's how you hear it, right? Here's the problem. That's only half the sentence. Almost never do we read the other half because the guy who made verses and put verses numbers made the other half of the sentence 17. And so we read through, it's, it's a verse, it's done. We see that as complete. Verse 17 is nonsense without 16 because it's, it's a phrase, it's not even a complete sentence. So that the man of God will be adequately or completely equipped for every good work. Paul seemed to think those were important to put together. We miss it all the time. The issue of uh, dominance in marriage is primarily in the Christian world, well, it's primarily letting our culture invade the church, but the way we justify it is a problem with verses because we have verse 21 and verse 22 in Ephesians 5, and we forget verse 21, don't look at it and read from verse 22. Major, major mistake. So, you get all that for free, by the way. It's on top of the book of Acts. But, no dates, um, and what we will have is context, and I will be able to give you some general dates, but basically, we're talking about events that occur from 33, approximately, because it picks up with, uh, with the ascension and the beginning of the church on the day of Pentecost, um, the same year, just seven weeks later, as Jesus' crucifixion. And it ends roughly 60, 62, somewhere in there, with Paul being released, well, not released, but being transferred in custody from uh, Syria and Antioch and making the trip to Rome to have his case heard by the emperor. So we're dealing with roughly 30 years. That help? Yeah, that was yeah. kind of what I was looking for, where, yeah. where there were gaps and stuff. And we're, not, we're really not going to be able to nail all of those in between, but obviously when you, when you read the narratives and you remember how much time travel took, it, we're dealing with years and years. Okay, good question. Any others? Okay, if you come up with any as we go along, feel free to interject them. Well, let's go ahead and look at the, uh, the survey form. And as we do that, when we get to background, I'm going to give you one other handout, and I want credit for it being in color, okay? Because everything else is black and white so far, I'm just saying. So this is usually considered church history. It is, again, three decades of church history and only a certain part. It is called the Acts of the Apostle. That was a name that was given to it as a description. And in the ancient times, not an uncommon phrase, the acts of so-and-so, the acts of so-and-so. Um, there's a problem with it, though, and that is that you get not a complete record of the acts of any of the apostles. You get substantial record of one, a partial record of two, 
some record of the rest, but only some. So very, very heavy emphasis, first on Peter, in conjunction with the others, yes, but clearly with Peter being seen as, uh, at the very least, the spokesperson. Now, also John. Um, John and Peter were, number one, good friends. Uh, not all the apostles apparently had equal relationships with each other. There were friendships within the groups that were deeper than others. Peter, James, and John were very good friends. James was killed very early in, in the history of the church. And so Peter and, and uh, John uh, continued that. And many of the narratives you have in the early chapters are of those two. And then they'll come back and talk to the others. Um, Paul and his conversion are brought in. And then from that point forward, the lion's share by far is about all right. The author, again, Luke, the Greek physician, um, almost universally considered to be the same guy as who wrote the Gospel of Luke. And uh, that comes from stylistic similarities, vocabulary, uh, writing style, grammar style, all of that stuff. Plus, if you read Luke and Acts as part one, part two, it's almost like seeing a two-part TV show. You, you come to the end of Luke, and it leaves you with a dramatic thing, and almost like, stay tuned for scenes of next week. And then you come into Acts, and it does a little bit to catch you up, to get you started, but then just picks up from there and goes forward. And of course, the reason it focuses so heavily on Paul is because it was written as part of a legal defense for Paul. And we hear about how he came to that, um, at least the first part in the uh, final chapters of Acts. So Luke brings the reader up to um, both the end of his Syrian confinement. Um, the Romans did not have any regional government post in Israel. So all of the affairs that had to do with Israel were taken to Syrian Antioch, the city is Antioch. And so he was there for two years and it actually says, and remember this was written to Romans who knew these people very well because this is only a year or two difference. Um, it actually says the reason he was there that long is they were waiting for a bribe and they were ready to give up and just kick him loose when he said, no, I appeal to Caesar. So that becomes a brief, if you will, on the part of the defense to say to the court, namely to Caesar, this is how he got there. And then it contains a little bit more in terms of his journey there. And then it doesn't contain anything else. And the reason generally believed is the obvious whoever was reading this, Theophilus, and we really don't know who that was. Was that a title? Was it a nickname? Was it a name? Could have been any of the three or more than one, for that matter. Um, but Theophilus apparently was in Rome because this was the part of the judgment 
that was taking place in Rome, um, you would think it would be the one hearing the case. But it is really impossible to see Nero, who was the emperor at the time, being called a lover of God by a Jew or by a Christian. So, again, pretty much universally, no one believes Nero is actually Theophilus. Rather, in all likelihood, a court official whose job it was to brief Nero because he's the emperor and he's not going to take interest in every single case of every citizen. But every citizen had a right to make him be the judge. So when that happened, others would come up with the summaries, make recommendations, and Nero would step in and say whatever. Okay? So that gives you a good idea of, of where we are, the purpose, the background. Um, let me give you now a colorful map. How many of you can remember your geography of the Middle East? A little bit? How many of you know where Israel is? If you had to find Israel on a map, could you find Israel? Okay. Believe it or not, most people could not. Because we're not used to seeing Israel on a map, we're just used to hearing sound bites about Israel. So to, if, you, if you look at this, and this is not one of those you'd find in the back of your Bible. Um, I gave you this for a reason because this focuses on the Middle East from the Roman perspective. And he's writing to Romans. So they would see things geographically, at least from this perspective. So if you can, um, I think we're a small enough group, I can kind of do this and then you can look at your own. We're familiar mostly with things over here. The boot of Italy. Right? Did everybody see the boot of Italy and know that's what it was? Because it's pretty much the only country that's a boot. And we all know about that. Um, you may or may not be familiar with this little place right here at the very entrance of the Mediterranean. But I guarantee you, you've heard the name. Which is what? Gibraltar. Gibraltar, by the way, is the north side, not the whole area. Um, and anybody on the south side will tell you that very quickly because the Africans don't really like being labeled by European names. So the rock of Gibraltar is actually a promontory rock that juts out and has jutted out literally thousands of years that we know of. And so we, we hear about the rock of Gibraltar. It's a giant rock. And when you go through this the Strait of Gibraltar, um, going from the Atlantic Ocean into the Mediterranean, you will see the Rock of Gibraltar. You cannot not see the Rock of Gibraltar. It's kind of like running into a, a country or a land and not seeing land when you run into it. So this is what's called the Iberian Peninsula. Um, the Iberian Peninsula is um, Portugal, Spain, and France. And that area is, uh, is the, the closest to the Atlantic and it is not heard of in Acts at all because at the time this was this is where they sent people they didn't like if the Romans wanted to punish someone Pilate for example was sent 
to be governor here um, after the chaos in Palestine. Um, it was just a wild country, lots of rebellions and just hassles. Okay. Um, then you have, um, I'm sorry, Gaul is actually on the top of that. So it's kind of the bridge between Europe and the Iberian Peninsula. Um, and then you get into what we, that area is what we are more familiar with if you look at Europe in general. Then you come over here across the other side from Italy and you see another little peninsula or, or uh, promontory there. Uh, it's not the least bit little in reality. Um, it was known as Macedonia. That was the, the general name for the more modern part, or northern part, excuse me. And then under that is Achaia. Um, together, they form what we call Greece. Athens, the uh, famous capital, is in the lower half, Achaia. But there are biblical references to both places that Paul stopped, started churches in, had interactions with people, and then left. Okay. Um, by the land route, you would go through Thrace in order to get to the next major section on the coast, which we would refer to as Turkey. But it had... The, the biggest part of it was called Asia Minor, but there were numerous little um, regions that were actually Roman provinces. So when you see in these red names, those are the names of Roman provinces, many of which you will read in the New Testament as well, particularly in Acts, because he's writing to Romans. So it makes sense. He's going he's to reference it with terms that they would recognize. Now, if you look at where it says Asia, and then it says Galatia, are you all with me? You're in Turkey. The next province is Cilicia, and there is a city, little dot there, called Tarsus. Does everybody see that? Tarsus, th this is all totally Greek culturally. We talked about that last week. Ever since Alexander came through, Greek culture was everything in this area. But U.S. on the ending, that's Latin. Tarsus was a Latin name for a city. Now, you might see a Latin name or a Latin ending in the provinces because they're Roman provinces, but the cities generally had the Greek names. The reason Tarsus had a, a Latin name, a Roman name, is because it was a Roman city. Now, it's, it was a Greek city, and the area rebelled against Rome. Tarsus sided with Rome. And as a reward, it became a Roman city. Now, what that meant was Tarsus had the standing in Rome that Orange has in the United States. If you're born in the city of Orange, what country is your citizenship? The U.S., period. Doesn't matter your parents' status, doesn't matter your ethnicity, doesn't matter how long you've been there, how long your mother's been there. You are a U.S. citizen, period. That's the law. And that practice goes all the way back to this time and before. If you're born in a Roman citizen, city. By the way, the practice does not extend, for example, to Rome. 
because, of course, there's all the slaves. So you had to be born of a citizen. But anyone in a city, in a, in a province like this, designated a Roman city, automatically got citizenship. To let you know how important that was, if you were to seek citizenship, you could buy it. It would cost you roughly, depending on you know, who, who you compare it to, a lifetime's earnings. Literally. Um, you could go the cheap way, serve 20 years in the legions, and survive, by the way. That wasn't a given, because they were at war with someone all the time. It was an empire, constantly expanding, conquering. So if you were a member of one of those conquered nations and you wanted citizenship, one way to do that was enlist in the legions. And then if you served faithfully for 20 years, you were given citizenship. Citizenship was inherited. So if, you were, if you're born to a citizen, you're a citizen. But that means if you become a citizen, your children become a citizen. Now why is that important? In a Roman-dominated area, like everything you see on this map, basically, there was what we call the Pax Romana, Latin for the peace of Rome, or the Roman peace. Pax Romana was named that because the Romans were so brutal that if anyone attacked one of their citizens or anyone under their protection, even if you simply stole a small coin, you would be crucified. I mean, it was, there was no, what sentence do we give? You were immediately, and the only way you got out of that is if they killed you in the process of arresting you. It was certain you were going to die, and it was probably going to be a horrible death, and a very public one, because that was the point. That terror was so effective that it was said you could walk from any place to any other place throughout this area without fear of anyone attacking you if you were a Roman citizen. And in many cases, even if you weren't. Because who knew? Unless they knew, they were taking a horrible chance. Now, by the way, if you weren't a Roman citizen and you were attacked, depending on who the local governor, who the local centurion was, you may or may not get support. You may or may not have anybody care. You may or may not, in fact, have been attacked by the Romans. Because if they decided you had something they wanted, as long as there was no riot because of it, the emperors hated riots, as long as there wasn't a riot because of it, no one cared. This is why the tax collectors were so hated because they would come in and collect the Roman tax, turn it over to the Roman guards, and then they would take whatever else they wanted. And because they were the tax collectors, the Roman guards supported it. You tried to stop them, they wanted your borough. Boroughs, by the way, were only wealthy people had boroughs. They wanted your borough. They took your borough. You try to stop them, the guy with the sword steps in. And you're lucky if it's only a warning. You don't have a borough. And the guy says, I think you need to give me 20 pieces of gold. And you don't have 20 pieces of gold. 
He could take one of your children and sell them into slavery. It wasn't about law, because the law really didn't apply if you weren't a citizen. It was about power. So citizenship was pretty popular. Now, why did I go into all of this? Because in the book of, of Acts, you're going to see, as you read through it, a history of a guy who was a Jew, a Pharisee. Y'all understand what that means, right? Very legalistic and hated Gentiles. If a Gentile came into his home, he considered his home to be ceremonially unclean to the extent that he would not participate in a sacrifice until he had made a sacrifice to cleanse himself because of our presence. That guy was Saul of Tarsus, also known as Paul. But he also had Roman citizenship. And he used it strategically numerous times, including the reason this book was written. If he had not been born in Tarsus, if he had been born in Ephesus, anywhere else, then when the riot happened that caused him to be handed over to the Romans and spend time in, uh, in Antioch towards the end, the Romans would have simply allowed the Jews to tear him apart. They didn't care. They stepped in because it looked like a riot was starting and because he said, I'm a Roman citizen. Just like that. He gets protection. And by the way, if you, if you were uh, a legionnaire and you failed to protect a, lo a, a Roman citizen, you were executed. If you're a Roman citizen, by the way, execution, beheading. Now, as gruesome as that sounds, that was considered the best way to go. It's fast. If you weren't a Roman citizen, there was any number of forms. The most common, for purposes like this, crucifixion. So when Paul was killed by Nero, not after this imprisonment, but about four years later, he was beheaded. When Peter was killed, same reason, leaders in the church trying to put the church down. Peter was crucified, tortured to death. Peter wasn't a Roman citizen. So that Tarsus thing becomes pretty important. Now tell me that wasn't fun. I love history. I will, I will own to that. Okay, keep going, and you're going to come around where it starts turning south at the end of the Mediterranean Sea. And immediately you're going to be in Syria. That's the northern part, pretty much where it is today. And then just below that is uh, Palestine or Israel. You will notice there's no red name for that because it was a very insignificant little place to the Romans. But it's right below there, and you can even see um, Jerusalem printed there for reference. Geographically, give you an idea. If you take Palestine from Galilee to the top of the Sinai, Jesus walked that frequently numerous times in his three-year ministry. Um, 
what was the length of that? It was, it was a long journey. Roughly, you could, you could pick that section up and drop it in the San Joaquin Valley. And it would fit. So it gives you an idea. You know, it's not huge by our standards. Not even close. But by their standards, particularly when you're walking everywhere, yeah, it, it, was, it was pretty big. Okay. Hopefully that helps you to just orient. Uh, when you read in the scriptures about Israel, Syria, um, Rome, of course, Greece, Egypt. Those are all pretty much where they are today. Now, a number of the other places, Macedonia has moved hundreds of miles, depending on what point in history you're, you're talking about, whatever they call Macedonia or Macedon at the time. So when you hear that, you want to ask when, and then you can figure out where it was. Um, Asia Minor doesn't exist. We have Turkey, and of course Turkey didn't exist then. So there's lots of other places. Jordan, um, which is literally across the river from uh, Israel, there's the West Bank, and then there's Jordan. It didn't exist. It was simply part of Israel's called the Transjordan, which means it's the part that's across the river. Pretty simple, right? Okay. Content summary. The Acts of the Apostles fills in the gap between the resurrection and the ascension of the Messiah on the one hand. That's Acts 1. And the, and the churches at the time uh, of the general letters. So you've got these churches and um, pretty much most of the letters written to the churches were written by the time the Acts covers. Does that make sense? In other words, they're within that period of time. The reasons are as simple, and that is, well, that's most of them, not all of them. That is because it was written by Paul and during the time he was traveling. Um, afterwards, mo most of Paul's life is done. He lives probably three to four years after this, um, and then he was executed in the Neronian persecution. Um, some of those were written, some of the letters were written as the prison letters, and we'll talk about that later, and they were thought to be written during the time he was sitting in Rome waiting for Caesar to finally get to him. And generally that was considered to be about two years. Again, we have no records. We can only go on church tradition, on uh, vague historical references, and then filling in the blanks with cues or clues from the letters. Okay, Luke places emphasis on the growth of the church and the personalities involved, particularly Peter and Paul. And if you notice, there is zero in this that would be threatening to the Roman government. Absolutely nothing that would be threatening to the Roman government. Up to and including reference to Jesus as king. You remember the little discussion with Pilate? They say, you're the king. Are you the king? He says, my kingdom's not of this world. Well, he's still saying he's a king. And Pilate's trying to feed him lines to get out of crucifying him. And Jesus didn't go along. Calling yourself a king without Roman approval, that's <coughs> killed. There was nothing like that. Number one, it wasn't needed. But number two, the whole point was there's no reason to hold him. 
He's not doing anything against Rome. The church is not doing anything against Rome. Now, you can make a case that it was, but only if you're very politically savvy and you could see down the road decades to 100 years, because, of course, the teachings of the church were going to collide with Rome and Rome's power. Jesus' own teachings were going to collide. Yeah. It wasn't considered subversive to the government? Well, again, that's what I'm saying. Um, At this time, very rarely was it considered that. The only way it was seen that way was in the sense that they were considered atheists. Because Christians, like Jews, did not believe in any of the Greek and Roman gods or any others except Yahweh. So, to the Romans, they were considered atheists, which would have been pretty much the way an atheist would have been seen maybe 20 or 30 years ago here. I don't know if you've noticed, but it's not unpopular to be an atheist today in the United States. When I was in, in growing up in school, to say you're an atheist uh, it would get you in trouble in a lot of places. Because I was kind of going through that, not sure where I was, and I did that once. And it was, it was interesting. I got a pretty strong response from the faculty of the school. Okay. Today, there's no way in the world that's going to happen. Now, a few years later, when Nero saw the political advantage of uniting Rome against a common enemy, an internal enemy, then that issue became huge. And it became huge because he identified primarily Christians, but Jews as well, because remember, they were seen as a Jewish sect. So to them, it was like one thing. And basically it went like this. These guys, number one, are immoral beyond belief. They're weird. They do amazingly strange things. They practice cannibalism in their worship services. You hear it? You hear where that comes from? Does everybody know where that comes from? Body of Christ. See? They weren't stupid. They knew better. But this was a way to enrage the masses. And worst of all, you know that famine? You know that plague that came through? That came through because the gods were angry. Because we're tolerating these people who so disrespect the gods as to deny that they even exist. They won't even burn incense to the emperor. So it's like the height of anti- patriotism Um, not at all unlike what Hitler did with the Jews now Hitler was an anti-Semite so was half of Europe at that time but the Jews were safe generally Hitler saw that the way to unite a very divided not just Germany but Eastern Europe was against a common enemy and the Jews were very convenient they became that enemy. And it worked. And by the way, it worked for Nero too. So when you, when you read about persecution, you have to understand it was one of these things. Ten years after Nero, things were calmed down. Ten years more, they heat up again. It's all about which emperor is in power, what's his agenda. So this is in, say, early 60s, 
Nero let him go. It wasn't a big deal. Three or four years later, he hunted him down, had him executed. Big, big deal. Then there was this up and down, but by and large, after Nero, the church experienced a fair amount of peace because particularly as you got away from Rome, most people didn't care. And then towards the end of the first century, you have the Emperor Domitian. It wasn't just him, by the way, but I, I name him because he was in power when John was taken from Ephesus and placed in exile on a little island called Patmos and not allowed contact because the fear was the last remaining apostle, they weren't going to kill him because they would create a martyr that would be more powerful than John was alive. So what they did is just try to marginalize him. What John did was write an extraordinarily powerful letter and he wrote it in apocalyptic language. I'm not going to tell you too much there because we'll, we'll get there. Language that was so weird and bizarre that the Romans, who were not used to this literary style, it was a Jewish literary style, the Romans thought, he's just a weird guy. He's, this guy's out of his mind. He's seeing all these things. And they allowed this letter, we call it the Revelation of John, to go out from Patmos to the mainland and be circulated. The theme of that letter, God wins, the world doesn't. And everybody who read it at that time understood that meant God wins, Domitian does not. So hang in there, be faithful, Domitian is temporary. Which, by the way, is true. His reign was a very brief one. Is this making sense? So we, we see it from 2,000 years later, and it's just like the whole period was one of persecution, when in reality it was up and down, up and down, up and down. But it was all about using Christians and using, Roman, or using Jews to be scapegoat for the problems of the Romans. So it was driven by the Roman government. The Roman people got on board for the same reason people got on board against the Jews in Europe. They were different. They believed different. Probably already had some prejudice against them because they were different. And it became a very easy group to target. Make sense? Okay. Good question. Let's look at the outline briefly. Uh, now, this is a, a fairly lengthy book by New Testament standards, and I'm only giving you five general sections. So, obviously, these are broad. Uh, the introduction is the first 11 verses. This is that part that kind of joins Luke and Acts so that they can then take off. Then you have the, the church in Jerusalem. It begins with the apostles following the command that was given to them to go to Jerusalem and wait. Wait until Pentecost and the Holy Spirit will come on you and give you power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, which is the region, Samaria, the next region north, and the uttermost parts of the world. So Jesus had said to them very clearly, you're going to go there, it's going to start there, and then you're going to tell people about me everywhere. Okay. Um, 
chapter 2, you see the beginning of the church. And let me see. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold a little more content on that for the part right below. But through this, all the way to chapter 8, um, you're focusing on Jerusalem. Here's the interesting thing. The people who came to Jerusalem and formed the early church, first of all, many had come to Jerusalem. So picture this. You've got people living, make sure it's not upside down, people living all through here, right? The Jews have been dispersed everywhere you see. And in fact, the, the brown areas were the areas not yet conquered by the Romans. And the Jews were there too. Because seven centuries earlier, they had been driven out, the majority of them driven out of Israel and scattered. And they just became somewhat nomadic, looking for places they could settle and belong. And they did. And wherever they went, they formed Jewish communities. Eventually, they formed a synagogue. And the, the synagogue then became the focus of their faith rather than the temple. Because the temple's in Jerusalem. It's the only place you can sacrifice. So for the Jew who was in Rome, Jerusalem was a dream. They may never see it, but they did all dream it. And the common dream, and it's, it's still echoed in a very common, uh, uh, not a greeting, it's a way of saying goodbye among uh, Jews who, who truly have a religious faith, um, is to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. They celebrated Passover. And remember, by the way, Passover began not in the Holy Land or in Jerusalem. Um, I don't like that phrase, by the way, but that's why I put quotes on it. Because um, it didn't exist yet. That's where they were going to go. Passover began where? Egypt. In Egypt. That's how they got out. But they celebrated it everywhere. And then the phrase, next year, in Jerusalem. It was, it was a hope. It was a prayer. And many Jews would save their whole lives to gain enough money to allow them to take months off of whatever trade they practiced and make the journey either by land or by sea. By the way, the Mediterranean was not known for calm waters. So that was a pretty dangerous trip. And go to Jerusalem, celebrate Passover in Jerusalem which means that mob that cried out for Jesus' blood before Pilate were Jewish, but they were internationally Jewish. They weren't just from Judea. They weren't just from Israel. They were from all over. Now, you spend that much time. It took months for some of them to actually make the trip. You don't get there, celebrate Passover, turn around and leave. You're going to stay a while. And so what most of them tried to do was stay seven weeks, which means they'd saved up enough to either live with family or rent a place and be there seven weeks later. Seven weeks, 50 days. Yes, I know, seven times seven is 49. But Jews counted the beginning and the end. So eight o'clock tonight to eight o'clock tomorrow night, two days. Today, tomorrow. That's how they counted it. 50, Pente, the feast that was held seven weeks later, seven weeks after Passover, 
Pentecost. So they would come for uh, Passover and they would stay until Pentecost. Jesus tells the apostles, go back to Jerusalem. Wait there until Pentecost. The Holy Spirit's going to come on you and you're going to be my witnesses. And they did that. The church began that day because Peter stood up after the whole speaking in tongues thing. Speaking in tongues, by the way, in the New Testament was always the proclamation of the wonders of God in a language unknown to the speaker but known to some of the listeners. So we've got these people from all over the Roman world. Not all of them spoke Hebrew. But Peter and the apostles, a good bet, virtually none of whom were, were bilingual, they were all pretty common people from Palestine. They're proclaiming the wonders of God, meaning they're teaching the gospel. And people are hearing it in their own languages. Here's the problem. Thousands responded. The church was formed. It was actually considered by the common people, at least, to be very, very positive. They, were, they, they have great reputation among the people because they helped people out. They loved each other. They, they lived in a communal form. They didn't bother anybody. The only thing they did wrong is they kept talking about the Messiah being Jesus, which really ticked off the people in the Sanhedrin. So every now and then, Peter and John got called in and flogged and told to quit doing that. What about the part that said, you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world? It wasn't happening. And we're talking years. We don't know how many, but we know numerous. They didn't leave. They did not begin to spread the gospel throughout the empire. Even the ones, by the way, who came on this, uh, this journey, this um, pilgrimage, and became Christians, they stayed because they thought Jesus was coming back any minute. This is going to be right now. This is why the Hellenistic widows did not have any money to eat. And there was this thing between the Greek Christians, and, or, which were the Hellenistic ones, and the Palestinian ones, which were the ones from there, because the Hellenistic ones had run out of money. And they had to start taking up a collection to feed these people who couldn't feed themselves because they kept staying there waiting for Jesus to come back. It was not until another persecution arose, this one, by the way, primarily Jew on Christian, had not, not one about the Romans, it wasn't until that happened that they began to leave. And that's when they began to fulfill the command. God works through history. Did God cause a persecution? I've heard people who say, yes, I have to say no. I cannot lay sin at God's feet. Did God use the persecution? Absolutely. Because now you see the third part, which is the period of transition and the gospel beginning to move out. And it's just beginning. Then in the fourth section, the expansion to the Gentiles, you read now about the gospel actually becoming 
common to the Gentiles. Even to the point where, and it doesn't actually say this, but historically we know this, where there were way, way more Gentile Christians than Jewish Christians. So here's how it would work. Paul or some other apostles. Apostle big A, apostle small A. What does the word apostle mean? What? Nope. I can see the context where you would get it, like a disciple. But disciple is student. There were thousands and thousands and thousands of them. Messenger? Uh, Closer. Messenger is anybody who takes a message that's actually an angel. Yes, okay. Not necessarily a a spiritual being. If, If you take a message to someone else, for me, you're an angelos, an angel. So God's messengers were called angels, but so were human messengers. Apostle, where did my little marker go? Close associates. Pardon? Close associates. No. What you're doing is not bad because you're trying to work it out from context. And if you don't have the ability to immediately look it up, it's what we do. Uh, However, it's better to look it up. It, It is from the Greek... Apostolos, apostolos, and it means a person sent with a commission. Sent with a commission. In other words, not just sent out, like get out of here, but I'm going to send you away to do this. This is your purpose for leaving. This is your charge. Okay. Today, we would usually refer to them as missionaries. Unless, of course, missionary to you means like a doctor going out or, you know, when we go down and build a house, um, that would not be an apostolos. So an apostolos, an apostle, was anybody sent out to do that work, the mission of spreading the gospel. For example, we read about Paul, and at the time, they were still referring to him by his Jewish name. He didn't change his name, by the way. It was extraordinarily common for uh, people straddling those societies to have their Jewish name, but also have a name that they went by in the Gentile world. It's not unlike Juan and John. Now, the difference is that's an actual same name, just translated in two different languages, whereas Paul and Saul are not the same. They're similar. So Saul... Now an apostle, we've already seen his conversion, goes out to visit places that haven't heard the gospel. And he's going to take the gospel there. Barnabas goes with him. Barnabas was the guy that first was willing to risk Saul's friendship because everybody thought Saul was still out to kill him. Um, And so Barnabas and Saul became good friends, close associates. He goes with them. They're both apostles. But we call some apostles, instead of apostle like that, apostle like that, right? Anybody know the difference? Is referring to the twelve? The twelve. Some of these were chosen by Jesus for a very specific role. A role uh, with a commission far more specific and with far more authority and power. 
than that given to others. Paul is considered capital A. There were 12. We all know the one that dropped out, right? So Judas betrayed Jesus, committed suicide. Now there's 11. What about that other guy? Anybody remember his name, by the way? Matthias. Good job. Most people don't remember. Because once that passage where Peter decided, we need to pick another one. Once that passage is gone, you never hear about him again. Now, I didn't mean Matthias was a bad guy or didn't do anything. What it meant is he wasn't central to Luke's story. uh, And the Holy Spirit apparently didn't think we need to know more about him. Personal opinion, you get to read it, pay your money, take your choice. Matthias was not ever intended to be capital A. Peter jumped the gun. Peter himself does not say, the Holy Spirit told me to do this. The apostles never said, we all know the Holy Spirit wants us to do this. They said that about other things. Peter just said, no, it's supposed to be 12, we're only 11, we need to get one. And so they threw lots, kind of like drawing straws. And they chose Matthias. The problem is that clearly we know from hindsight Jesus already had another one, and that was Saul, whom, by the way, Peter fully accepted as an apostle a little later. Okay, so now we have this expansion. Saul, Barnabas, Silas, um, Mark, whoever was doing it, would go to a synagogue, and they would take the news that Jesus was the Messiah to the synagogue. They would show from the Old Testament, this man fit the prophecies, and the Jews crucified him, meaning, by the way, we crucified him. The Jews wasn't someone else. It was in a synagogue. But God raised him from the dead. So many of them believed. Here's where the problem came. At that point, Paul would then step out of the synagogue and go into the marketplaces and give the exact same message to the Gentiles. And you too can be part of the kingdom. You too can be forgiven. You too can belong to Jesus. And the Jews are sitting back going, whoa, wait a minute. Where in the world did you get that? Jewish Messiah. Gentile. That didn't work. And many of them became enraged and more than once tried to kill Paul. You'll see accounts of that in the book of Acts. After a while, because of this, and because Paul said to the Gentiles, you do not have to become Jews to be Christian, to belong to the Messiah. Remember, Christ is simply a Greek word for anointed. Guess what Messiah means? Anointed. Christ is Greek for Messiah. You don't have to be Jewish to belong to the Messiah. See? That really enraged the more conservatives of the Jews. By the mid-60s, and I don't have an exact date, I want to say 64, but I don't know that I can back it up. There was a... um, a synod, if you will, of rabbis in Jerusalem. 
and uh, they were from all over the Roman world. They met together to deal with the Christian problem. And they proclaimed together, any Jew accepting Jesus as Messiah is to be put out of the synagogue. That was an extraordinary punishment. You're no longer considered Jewish. You're no longer allowed to associate with Jews, do business with Jews. And in times of persecution, it's the only thing that kept them alive. So this was, this was heavy. And of course, anybody who was not very committed floated back and rejected Christ. Those who were committed, by and large, were now being persecuted by their own people. And within a few years, you're going to see a letter written to try to help them deal with that fact. And it was written to those Jewish or Hebrew people. And we call that the letter to the Hebrews. Now, I'm trying to weave this all through the narrative of Acts. And we'll get into a lot more detail with each of those. But the reason is Acts straddles all of those historically. The final section is the imprisonment and defense of Paul in, uh, I'm sorry, I kept saying uh, Antioch, it's Caesarea, um, and Rome. There is a, a Syrian Antioch, which is a Roman colony, but Caesarea is the uh, provincial capital. Um, and that's the 21st through the 28th chapters. Part of that is the story of how he got there, which is the whole riot in Jerusalem thing. And part of that is the account of his journey toward Rome once he was sent from Caesarea. And then the rest of that is uh, accounts of him standing before the rulers in Caesarea. Okay. Um, any questions about anything we've covered so far? Is any of this particularly interesting? It's all interesting. Good. I'm a history person too. Good. We need more of those. Now let's look at some specific passages. We're not going to go deep into them, but I'm going to cover them. One of the reasons is because I'm encouraging you to use this as your reading guide. If you're, I mean, if you're doing something else already, then I'm not trying to get you away from that. But since we're not doing study guides, per se, for this class, to go to this and look at this and say, uh, okay, I'm going to get in and see what they said about this. What, the first, of course, is what we said is the introduction, those first 11 verses. Um, yeah, let's go ahead and look at that part. So Luke starts it with this. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of me, heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Uh, what I just read basically is previously... And then you get those scenes. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to heaven or the kingdom of Israel? Now, remember two things. Number one, nobody dreamed that this was going to take millennia. 
Nobody thought that. Not the apostles. Nobody. And number two, the kingdom of Israel was still in their mind because they still didn't quite understand what Jesus meant when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not about Israel. It's the kingdom of heaven. See? So they asked that question. He said, it's not for you to know times or epics what the Father is fixed by his own authority. So he just wipes it away. And now he gives them the commission. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Okay. Now, in verse 9, we hear the account of the ascension itself. After he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has seen, who, who has been seen, taken up, sorry, who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And that ends the first 11, the introduction. Um, notice anything about that? Anything strike you interesting? Men of Galilee. Well, they weren't all Galilee, but that's okay. Most of them, you know. Who's he talking about? The apostles. The apostles. So who in the world are these two guys dressed in white? In a strict sense, absolutely. Because they were messengers. God had sent them at the very beginning of the time Jesus has been taken away to keep their focus. I find this amazing, but I don't know that I would be any different. I don't know that we would be any different. How easily distracted they could be. Now they're just like, Jesus has just told them what to do. And they're just standing there like. Now, if I saw Jesus physically, and saw him just sort of, I don't, it doesn't really say float, it's taken up. I don't know what that means. But he's here and then he goes up into the clouds and now I can't see him. I'm probably standing there staring too. What in the world was that about? And there's these two guys talking to the apostles, not just followers of Jesus, the guys Jesus just gave this authority and commission to and said, what are you doing? What's with stargate or cloud gazing here? You know what happened. And then they tell him one other thing. The way he went up, that's how he's coming back. So they reminded him, he's coming back. He's going to come back exactly the same way. But you got a job to do. And that's when they turned and went back to Jerusalem. The whole cloud thing, why the clouds? 
Any ideas? Well, we always have clouds, and so we're to be aware and prepared. Well, we don't always have clouds, because well, we live in Southern California. Well, that's true. But, I mean, clouds are a normal... They're common. ...common thing, and so we should always be prepared for... Okay. So it kind of it becomes kind of a reminder. Right. Okay. Contrast specifically to what? In this case. Ambient light. Okay, but in this case. Well, you can see what you're seeing. And, and then you don't. Right. So clouds, earth. He's not here anymore. The, the reason I bring it up is because this is one of those passages that is often criticized, and we as Christians criticized because we believe that Jesus is up there. You know, what, what, have you ever seen him? Because I've flown around in jets. For people say this. There is no teaching here that suggests that heaven is in the clouds, or for that matter, in space. Heaven is not physical place in the way we think of it. Now hear what I said, because it is a place, but not in the way we think of it, because the, the way this is, uh, can, can be taken is to teach, here's heaven, or here's us. Dig down deep enough, you'll find Satan in hell. Go up high enough, you'll find God in heaven. That's never been scriptural true. He was simply taken out, and you're, I think you're correct, in a way that says he's not here anymore. He's not with you anymore the way he was. But he said, seven weeks ago, the night before he was betrayed, when I leave, I will send you one to stand beside you. And he will never leave you. He will be your, well, we say helper, comforter, counselor, all means the one to stand beside. And here he just said, he will give you the power to do what you need to do. So Jesus, in essence, is stepping out of it and letting the Holy Spirit then do what he's going to do with the apostles. Jesus will return, um, obviously. Well, maybe not obviously, but definitely. Okay? Okay. I'm not going to spend that much time on the rest of these because it's the entire book, but um, I, I think this is important stuff to understand. This is... The, the framework, the mind of the apostles as they are now they're going to go to Jerusalem. Now their faith is very different than seven weeks ago. Seven weeks ago they go to Jerusalem and they're thinking everything's fantastic. They do the Last Supper. Jesus keeps talking this nonsense about dying, about leaving, and then he's arrested. The Romans have him. And then he's killed. And for three days, they were probably just absolutely torn apart. And then, apparently, from the way it describes uh, the women finding the empty tomb and then going and telling them, uh, apparently they were, they were surprised. And he didn't stay dead. And now for 40 days, they've had this experience, not just of, of walking and hearing and being taught by Jesus, but by the Jesus that used to be dead. By the one who, if you wanted to, you could stick your hand through the holes 
as Thomas did. That's pretty unique, would you agree? So now that part's over. And you gotta, you gotta be, if you're one of them, you gotta be wondering, wow, where, what's next? How's this gonna work out? But they know the Holy Spirit's gonna come on them on Pentecost. They don't know what that means. Jesus didn't spell it out. He didn't need to. Because the Holy Spirit's gonna take care of that. So, Acts 2, that happens. Holy Spirit comes on them. They stand up. They go outside. They start speaking in languages they don't even know. And explaining the glories of God to people from all over the Roman world. Ending up in Acts 2.37, 36 and 37, I believe, with Peter summarizing this. By the way, they, they were going back to the Old Testament and because at one point, somebody tried to pass it off because it sounded um, unintelligible to them because they didn't speak those languages. They're all drunk. Peter stands up and says, it's nine o'clock in the morning. No, they're not drunk. This is the power of God working. And then, from the Old Testament, shows them what he concludes right before the statement about what to do about it. Acts 2.37. This Jesus, whom you crucified. Now think about this. Seven weeks later, same group of people, same mob. Undoubtedly, some of the very same human beings standing in this crowd that had stood in that crowd yelling out, no, we want Barabbas, get rid of this guy. Go ahead and crucify him. This Jesus, whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Messiah. And someone from the group yells out, what are we going to do? Scripture says they were cut to the heart. What do we do now? And Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that day, that little group of apostles became a megachurch. Thousands of people. We have this picture of these little group homes, you know. No, thousands of people responding. Thousands of people being baptized into Christ immediately. That's Acts 2. The last, uh, the 14th to 40th is the presentation itself. Acts 8.2 is the dispersion of the church. It's a simple statement that uh, the persecution came and the church was scattered. Acts 9.1-30 is Saul's conversion. <clears throat> Excuse me. Do you all remember the account of Saul's conversion? Okay. So starts off fire-breathing Pharisee, ends up an apostle, designated to go after the very same people he would not have wanted even to be in there, in his home. Acts 10 and 15, we hear a validation of the gospel going to the Gentiles. Now remember who's writing this. Who's writing this? Who is what? A physician. A physician and Greek Gentile, not Jewish. Okay? So he's written so far all this stuff, he's kind of writing from a Jewish perspective. He's heard it from Saul. He's heard it from others. It's, it's common stuff. And of course, the Holy Spirit is guiding it. Now, he's referring to things that touch on him because he's writing this to a Gentile leader, a Gentile ruler who's going to judge Paul. 
So in Acts 10, we, we see the conversion of a guy named Cornelius. Cornelius was a Roman centurion. He was what was called a God-fearer. He had not become Jewish. You could do that. A Roman could become Jewish if they wanted to. Fairly simple, not necessarily easy. Um, you had to go through a process. You had to state your allegiance to Israel. You had to uh, study the law and commit to living by the law. <clears throat> if a male, you had to be circumcised. And then you had to be baptized. And it wasn't Christian baptism. It was Jewish baptism. The Gentile goes into the water and dies. And the Jew comes out. And from that point forward, that person is considered a Jew. Okay. So Jude, Judaism was never about DNA. From the very early days, from the law itself, there were ways prescribed for Gentiles to join the nation of Israel. It was about faith. It was about the relationship with God. So here's Cornelius, who had not done that, but was known as someone who greatly respected the Jews and who worshipped God. He just hadn't done that last step of circumcision and renouncing the fact that he was Roman. Which he could have done, but didn't. The Holy Spirit comes on him the same way as it had come on the apostles. And Peter's there to see it. Peter takes word of it back to the other apostles. Tells them the story. The story is so unique, so strange, that he has to emphasize this vision that God gave him before so that it would, he would get him there to actually behold this and witness it so he would know that God has definitely opened up the blessing of the gospel to the Gentiles. And he ends this little presentation to his fellow apostles with, having seen what God had done, how could I refuse him the water of baptism? How could I keep him, excuse me, from becoming Christian? So Cornelius is now a Christian, not a Jew, a Christian and witnessed and stamp of approval by Peter. From that point, you see Paul taking the gospel around through the Gentile world. And you see Jewish Christians being upset about it, even though that's happened already. So they were called the Judaizers, and they said you had to become Jude Jewish first. Then the gospel could apply to you. But you had to go through that process first. So they were known as Judaizers. The, the letter to the Galatians was written to people in the region of Galatia who had become Christian and, and now were being told by these people that they did it the wrong way, that they have to be Jewish first, and they were considering circumcision and giving themselves to the law. This ex-Pharisee writes this, if you haven't read Galatians, it is an amazing letter and it's very, very intense to tell them how in the world could you give up the freedom that God has given you for the entrapment, the imprisonment that we all lived under and it provided nothing for us. So no, you don't have to do that. This escalated and finally was taken to Jerusalem to the elders of the church in Jerusalem, which consisted at that time some of the apostles and some others, including another James, 
this one called James the Just, the one who wrote the letter to James, or a letter called James, who was Jesus' little brother, who, by the way, had not believed until the resurrection because he saw Jesus killed, and then he saw him alive. And that's when he believed. And he pronounces on behalf of not just the apostles, but the Holy Spirit, he says. It seemed right to the Holy Spirit and to us. Like, if we agree with him. And then he lays out, the Gentiles do not have to follow the law. We only ask that they do a few things. And that is abstain from immorality and from idolatry and from drinking blood, which was a practice related to idolatry. And even that, I mean, the immorality is obvious in the other part. You know, basically don't be idolaters and don't th do things that's going to set the Jewish Christians on edge because we want unity. And that was it. And from that point forward, the authority of the apostles laid with the conversion of Christians or, or of Gentiles to being Christians. The reason that's so important is because I'm, pro I, I'm betting that as I look across the room, that's all of us. So without that happening, we're not here. We're not part of the body. Okay, Acts 13, Saul changes to Paul, takes the lead in mission work. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Again, it's, it's an interesting story, by the way, what happens when this happens, but um, there's no big plan necessarily. He simply was spending all of his time with Gentiles, so he started using the Gentile name that he had used probably all his life, but only when it was with Gentiles. Um, probably more interesting as you read that account is how people responded to him and to um, Barnabas. So read the book of Acts, you'll see that. And then fast forward, Acts 25, Paul's appeal to Caesar, which took him from Caesarea and guaranteed at Roman expense that he would get to go to Rome. We already know he wanted to go to Rome. He had written the what's called Romans, the letter to the church in Rome, uh, probably eight to ten years earlier. We know the exact date. And even in there, he says, I'm trying to see you as I go through and on. Because he wanted to go to Spain and to those parts of the world where no one had spread the gospel at all. That was his passion is to go to be the first one that got to tell people and establish churches there. So we know he wanted to do this. He had never gotten to do this. Now he stands before this provincial ruler <coughs> under Rome and says, no, I'm not going to accept your judgment, even though, by the way, he's pretty sure it's going to be him, for him. I want to be judged by Caesar. He's a Roman citizen. He had that right, done deal, right then and there. And that's how Paul finally got all the way over to the other side. And we see from some of the letters that at the very least, he had the ability to share the gospel with some of the household of Caesar and see some of them respond. And then we're done with the book of Acts. It is 831. If you got kids to pick up, probably be a good time to do it. Otherwise, uh, if you got questions, I'd be happy to talk about them for a few minutes. But next week, we will get into the letters.